I want to give you just a little tiny glimpse into what happens in heaven when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. Sound good? Open up your Bibles with me. Turn to Acts, or not Acts, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And first, we're going to get some context in Luke chapter 15. It'll start off in verse 1. Here's what it says. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Now, Pop Quiz Village Church, if you're a tax collector or a sinner, are these like the godliest people in the nation? Negative, right? Um, these are largely outcast sinners, people who've rebelled against God, um, cheats, liars, steals, process, steal, thieves, prostitutes. And I think there's something interesting, and before we keep going on in the text, you need to stop here, and I think we just need to evaluate a couple things. Why wasn't Jesus freaked out by society's outcasts? What was it about Jesus that permitted him to eat with and celebrate with and be with regularly people who did not share his faith, his values, his ethics, his morals? What was it about Jesus that permitted him to regularly eat with such people? And I'll just I'll give you a simple answer. And I think, Village Church, if you get this in your brain and it sinks into your heart, it could actually change many of your relationships with non-Christians. And it's very simple. You ready? I guess not. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. You're like zoned out. You're like, uh, it's Father's Day. Come on. Bacon should be energizing you. Okay. Jesus did not expect somebody without the Holy Spirit to act like somebody who has the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not expect somebody who did not submit themselves under God's word to obey God's word. So Jesus was able to be in the physical presence of, to be fully engaged with somebody who does not love God the way he loves God, believe what he believes, think like he thinks, acts like he likes. They probably had foul language. They were manipulative, deceptive. And add to this that Jesus already knew the real condition of their heart. He knew their hearts better than these people even knew their hearts. But Jesus had the ability to be with these people because he did not demand them in that moment to be something they weren't and could not be because they could not be that without the Holy Spirit, which they didn't have. Picking up what I'm putting down? Feeling me? Okay, good. Here's the deal. You sit with somebody, and it might be somebody at work, might be a family member, might be a friend, might be a neighbor, and they're cussing, they're doing it. You should never ask or expect somebody to act like a Christian if they're not a Christian. You can expect me to jump 100 feet in the air, but I do not have the capacity to do it. And the person without the Holy Spirit does not have the capacity to act like somebody who has the Holy Spirit. And so if you change your expectations, right, you won't be constantly disappointed and then judgmental of all of the people who fail to meet your expectations day in and day out. And so Jesus had this profound ability to live with, to eat with, to talk with, to be around people who did not believe what he believed, and it didn't throw his whole world into a tailspin. He did not need to sit there and look down on them and shun them and condemn them. He had a very different attitude. He had the ability to engage them to the point where they wanted to be near him. We need to catch Watch this. What made people hate Jesus was not his personality, but his message. So it was when Jesus started communicating truth 
about what was actually going on, that people rejected him and didn't want to be around him. But there was something about Jesus' demeanor um, that was very profound, very engaging, and it drew people to him. So what's the difference between Jesus and us? Because if you talk to most Christians, they'll tell you that, uh, or not non-Christians, they will tell you that Christians are judgmental and condemning and shunning. You hear these are consistent accusations. Now, let's be honest. Do we judge? Yes. Paul says, judge those who are in the church. Judgment starts with the house of God. If you start sinning belligerently without repentance, are we going to have some words? Answer, yes. But then he says, it's God's job to judge those who are outside of the church, not yours. God will condemn. God will judge. God will evaluate the rightness and the wrongness of those things. Our job is to judge one another, but not to judge those who are outside. Jesus handled this masterfully. And there's something so compelling about his personality. So you see already off the bat here that people are flocking to him. Do you know who they weren't flocking to? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who actually had the source of truth, they didn't flock to them, but they ran away from them. So it goes on, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, in the Old Testament, when somebody grumbles, what does God think of that? He usually kills them. So God's not fond of grumbling, okay? Just FYI. So if you're prone to grumbling, just start reading the story of the Israelites and the Exodus, and you will find God strongly disdains grumbling and complaining. Um, but here's what they're doing. They're complaining, right? I can't believe this religious teacher would eat with a sinner, right? And the sinners wanted Jesus and wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees and the scribes. And so if you're Jesus, how do you respond to such ridiculous grumbling. Well, here's what he does, verse three. So he told them this parable. I'm just gonna pause. A parable, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's really all it is. And the disciples asked Jesus one time, why do you speak in parables to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and basically anybody with a hard heart, Jesus would speak in parables. Jesus basically said this. Because if I spoke in common language, they would understand it. I don't want them to understand. So here, I want you to catch this. When Jesus is confronting grumbling, hard-hearted fools, does he make a defense? No. He actually speaks in parables, confuses them, frustrates them, and they walk away scratching their head. Even if Jesus went into the best logical and intellectual defense of why he was eating with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, would it change their heart? Answer, no. And Jesus is smart, so he doesn't engage in ridiculous dialogue. He actually tells parables, and he does this. Honestly, he makes it clear to confuse and to frustrate them. So here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to tell a triad of parables, three parables. Um, You've heard of all of them. I'm going to give you just a brief overview. We're going to really focus in on two of them. The first parable is that of the lost sheep. You have this shepherd, 100 sheep. One wanders off. Now, how valuable is one sheep to a shepherd. Crazy valuable. Here's the deal. Let's say you have a couple dogs, and one of them meanders off in the middle of the night, and you know there are coyotes, and you know there are animals that will eat the dog, and you love the dog, because let's be honest, dogs are like kids 2.0, okay? Um, And so what do we do? We go, and we search, and we drive. How many of you have had a dog, you've lost it, and you've driven around the neighborhood searching and searching and searching and searching and searching? Some of you, you're cold-hearted. You're like, let him die. But now, um, 
but no, like for most people, a dog is like another member of the family. When the dog grieves, we actually have dog funerals. So, or the dog dies, we have like dog funerals. And so you go and you search and you hunt. And you, it just, it's, it's a sort of an analogy to help you understand the heart of a shepherd. Shepherds love their sheep, take personal responsibility for their sheep. They care for their sheep. And so the shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the one, and then he finds them. And you know what he does? He celebrates. He celebrates. So you call all your friends. My dog is missing. My dog is missing. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. You put pictures of the dog everywhere, and people go look. And it's one of those things that it's actually a communal event people actually find out about. And the second parable is a woman. She's got 10 coins. One of them goes missing. Now you read this, and you're thinking, who cares? It's a coin. I lose quarters, and okay, maybe it's a silver dollar. No. Um, One of these coins was worth about 10 days' worth of wages. So this is no small amount of money. And most, many, some scholars think that this coin was actually part of a bridal necklace that had 10 coins and it was used as a dowry. So now, ladies, I want you to imagine you lose a piece of your dowry. (laughs) Are you going to hunt for it? Is this deeply emotional? Let's make this even better. You lose your wedding ring. Are you going to hunt for it? I'll just give you a little analogy. Way back in the day, we were um, transforming what is now the 601 into what it is. And, and uh, my wife lost a diamond out of her wedding ring. And she cut open the uh, vacuum bag. Some of you were there. You remember that. Digging through dirt and all this disgust, trying to find it. There are people all over looking for this little, I think it was pretty big, but big diamond, you know? <laughs> But in the grand scheme of this building, it was little. Um, trying to find this diamond, and you know what? At the end of the day, we never found the diamond. We had to go buy a new one. But let me tell you, if she found that diamond, she would have held it up. She would have rejoiced and celebrated because it's not even just about the quantity of the diamond. It's the emotional connection that there is to it. And so this wasn't just a coin for this woman. This was a deeply emotional thing for her. And so when she finds it, she, what does she do? She celebrates it, right? She gets everybody together. Uh, look what happened. Then the third story is the prodigal son. You're all aware of that. And the son rebels against the dad, takes his inheritance, leaves, squanders it, finally comes home, and the dad throws this awesome, beautiful party. Now, what do all three stories have in common? Each had lost something deeply personal and of great value. When my daughter, oldest daughter, Elliot, was two, um, all of the ladies, or most of the ladies, I think, were on some kind of retreat or something. And when the women at Village Church go on a retreat, there's, like, dads and kids, which means there's, like, a 100 kids running around in complete insanity. It's wonderful. Um, I think new visitors must think we're the craziest church in the world. So our, my, my oldest daughter is running around, and, and I had some friends in town, and people start leaving the building, and I think to myself, I should probably go get my daughter and uh, so I can't find her. There's about five, ten people left in the building. And uh, my friends are with me. And we spend about a half hour searching for her. And let me tell you, I know this building really well. I know every nook. I know every cranny. I know every corner, every hiding spot, every door that you can open. I mean, if there is a place to hide, if I were a two-year-old, I could find it and I know where it is. And so uh, I'm thinking to myself, she's got to be here somewhere. So about a half hour of this, I'm hunting and I'm hunting. My friends are hunting. We're hunting. And we can't find her. And then it hits me. There's a foot and a half of snow outside. And by the way, there are a lot of exits out of this church. I don't know if you're aware. There are doors everywhere. And all that little two-year-old had to do was push open that door and walk out into a foot and a half of snow. It closes behind her, and she's stuck. And I had this moment of panic where I thought, my daughter might be sitting out frozen in the snow. 
And so we all went out, and we're looking for little foot tracks in the snow just to make sure that. And about 45 minutes total goes by, and I'm about to call 911 thinking, I have lost my daughter. I cannot believe this. Brienne is going to kill me. Um, yeah, she's shaking her head right now. Yes, I would have killed you. Um, and uh, the last thing any dude wants is to say, hey, honey, by the way, no idea where our child is. I had to call 911. What were you doing? Anyways. All the guys are like, yeah, that's like my worst nightmare. So, so I have this thought. I have my phone in my hand. I'm about to call 911. And uh, I have this thought in the room, classroom across from my office. There's a bunch of fake plants in the corner. Now, I went in the room. I opened up the metal cabinets to make sure. I looked behind the door. I was yelling her name. And, and uh, I thought, okay, I'll just I'll go check there. And I go over. I move the, the bushes or the trees back. And she goes, you found me. After a stern rebuke, <laughs> I picked her up, held that little girl harder than I ever have before, and we ran. I was like, we found her, and there are people in every corner of the church and outside walking around. Let me tell you, we celebrated because it was deeply emotional. It was so personal, something of great value, and I was so glad my wife didn't have to kill me. That was like, oh, we made it. And uh, we, we had our own little, like, two-minute party, and then just that, like, oh, I cannot believe she did that. Oh, I'm just going to, you know. And she was so cute about it. She, for, okay, I've played hide-and-seek with a lot, of, like, a lot, and I've never had a two-year-old for 45 minutes to stay quiet, right? That was, <laughs> just going to be honest. Here's what Jesus is trying to communicate. I'm going to catch this. He's trying to communicate to the Pharisees and to the scribes that these tax collectors and these sinners are of great value to God. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't share the Pharisees' morality, ethics, values, way of life, religious system, etc. And yet, Jesus steps back and he's trying to show them in a parable which he knows they won't understand. Yeah, they're not like you. And they're lost. The sheep wandered. The prodigal son completely rebelled and ran away. Um, yeah, they're not like you, but they are infinitely valuable to God. And he's on the hunt, and he is searching. And the Pharisees, the whole time, are stepping back, and they're just not getting it. They're shunning them. Meanwhile, Jesus gets the heart of God, which is people are infinitely valuable to God. And so he tells these stories to confuse them, but also now we get to see this with clarity to let us know that, yeah, on the outside... They are the moral reprobates or the uh, shunned of society or they are the ones who don't share your faith or share your values or share your personality or share your religious convictions. But you strip all that aside. They are men, women, students, and children made in the image of God and are of infinite value to him. You understand? So we get into these parables, and point number one in your sermon notes is very simple. What is most valuable to God? We look at verse four. He says this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost, I love this word, until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. You might just be tempted to read over this, but here's what you need to catch. Typically, he would walk the sheep back. 
but the sheep was injured or something that prevented it from actually moving. And so here's what the shepherd does. The shepherd takes the sheep, throws them over his shoulders, and hauls them home. And here's what Jesus is trying to get through to the Pharisees. You can preach at them all you want, but they cannot obey your laws because they don't have the Holy Spirit. You can yell at them, you can get mad at them, you can shun them, you can do whatever you want, but here's the deal. They need God to walk over to them and to pick them up and bring them back to the fold because they cannot do it. If you think you just uh, pleading and just purely pleading that somehow their own self-will, they're going to be able to get up and walk back into the fold, you're kind of missing the point of the gospel. The gospel is you are lost and you need to be rescued because you could not rescue yourself. And so God enters into these people's life. He picks them up, throws them over his shoulder and walks them back into the fold. And here's what Jesus is trying to communicate. They're of infinite value. You can preach at them all you want, but they can't come back. So Jesus needs to come in and rescue them. And the Pharisees just don't quite get it. Verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. If this doesn't make emotional sense to you, it's simply this. You, You just don't understand how valuable a sheep is to a shepherd. Okay? Uh, if that's not something you would call your friends and rejoice about, then you don't quite get the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd. Verse 7, um, so Jesus looks at the religious elite, and here's what he says. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So, pop quiz. According to verse 7, what makes God happier? Saved people acting like saved people or somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So like all of heaven doesn't seem to stop when you do what you're supposed to do, right? But something happens in heaven when a person who was far from God, who did not believe in God, did not have the Holy Spirit, is rescued by God and comes to faith in God through faith in Jesus Christ. Something huge happens. We're going to watch this unfold in here in just a moment. But I want to, I want to just call out something for you. And this is my personal opinion. I'll share it with you. You can disagree. But um, I think one of the greatest failures of the American church is our apathy toward those who are going to hell. So I'll tell you why I think this. How many of you, don't raise your hand, rhetorical, okay, would say you're busy? Here's what I know. Most people who were adults in the 80s and 90s would tell you that being an adult now is infinitely more busy and hectic and cluttered. Something has happened, probably something to do with technology, and busyness is not, at the end of the day, you know, just this huge, terrible thing. But when you get a whole bunch of people who are overwhelmed and we're busy, we lose all peripheral vision, and all we see is the urgent thing right in front of us. So before, when we grew up, you would know all of your neighbors. Now, we can go months and months and months and months without speaking to a neighbor because every one of us are on our daily task. I gotta go to work, I gotta get this done, I gotta get my lawn done, I gotta do that, right? And so we're so busy that our peripheral vision, the reality of the human beings around us, we start to, we're unable to see them any longer. And because we're so focused over here, we miss the fact that there are people all around me going to hell. And what has become most valuable, it is not the people, it's our task, it's our lifestyle, it's the demands, and all that kind of stuff. And I think at the end of the day, that's what's going on here. But here's the deal. The Pharisees shunned, so therefore they never actually heard the truth. We are too busy and numb, and the end result is the same. They still don't hear the truth. 
So whether or not we don't have a relationship with unchurched people because we're busy or because we're shunning them, the end result is the same. People are going to hell without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'll put that into you. Submit that for your consideration. We just moved, and uh, it brought up an old question, and the question is simply this. Why did God put us in this house? Why did God give us these neighbors? Why did God give us this street? Why did, why did God give us this community? Now, we lived in our old house for 11 years, and we asked that question at first, but then years go by, busyness happens, all that kind of stuff, and we stop asking the question. Now I'm in a place where that old question is being brought up again. And I just want to put it to you. I mean, is God arbitrary in where he put you and where you live? Answer Village Church, no. So why there? Why now? Why that neighbor? Why did he give me that neighbor across the street who just drove me nuts for years? You know, why? Well, apparently God in his wisdom had a plan for that. And he wanted me to develop these relationships. And so now I asked our new neighbors who are believers right next door to us, one of my first questions to them was, who are you already sharing the gospel with and how can I come alongside of you? And we had a great relationship, or discussion about the spiritual state of what's going on in our street. But I just want to put that before you. And question number two is, what makes heaven stop and celebrate? Look at verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, now that's about three to four months of wages, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost, right? And if you lost your wedding ring or that diamond, ladies, what would you do? You call your friends and if you found it, you would give me, you'd rejoice. There we go, good. Um, For I have found the lost, that which I had lost. Verse 10, just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents? So here's my question. Who in heaven specifically is rejoicing? I want you to just track with me for a moment. Go to verse 7, the parable just before this. Here's what it says. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Go to verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the next parable, we're not going to go deep into it. Just read these verses, 22, 23, and 24. This is the prodigal son. The father said to his servants after the son came home, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. In the first parable of the sheep, it says this, that all of heaven is rejoicing. And what this means is that the people, the the saints who have died and gone to heaven, they are aware of what's happening on earth. So you see in the book of Revelation, even that the saints um, who are martyred look at Jesus and they say, basically, how long until you avenge our blood? There's a very acute awareness of what's happening on earth. And so here's what happens. When somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, if you got a glimpse into heaven of Apparently, the saints see this. They stop and rejoice. Then you get to the lost coin. It says this, the angels, they stop and they rejoice. Some of us have this misconception that angels are like mindless automatons, like a robot. Yes, Jesus, whatever you say, I will do. 
They are not. If Satan, a fallen angel, has the capacity for such hatred and loathing, he also has the inverse capacity for much joy and and happiness. So angels also seem to be deeply emotional beings capable of deep emotions. And so you see the people stop and they rejoice. The angels stop and they rejoice. And then the Father himself throws this huge party, stops and rejoices. Does the whole realm of heaven stop because you're a good person today? No, but you show me one person who comes to Jesus Christ and it's like everybody stops. There's a big party and heaven celebrates. And so I just, I come back to this and I'm like, wow, God loves when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. He loves this so much. So why wouldn't I want to be a part of that more? Do I value what God values? Do I love like God loves? Well, apparently God loves people who don't love him a whole lot. People who don't think like him, love him, act like he wants them to act. He loves them a lot. He goes on the hunt for them, and he searches them. And when they finally come home, he throws a party for them. Now, that's very different than the Pharisees, right? That's very different than the numb, busy American Christian, right? I guess I come back to this and I say, who are you searching for? Are you participating with God at all on the search? Who in your life are you praying for that they would come to faith in Jesus? Who are you in discussions with? Because at the end of the day, I mean, Jesus leaves, ascends into heaven, and what does he say? Okay, everybody listen up. I got one message for you. Go, go and make disciples. Oh, wait, so okay. So you want me to go and make disciples? Okay. Go and make disciples. Is he clear? Does that mean be busy and mind, mindless and numb to the plight of people going to hell all around you? Not at all. So you have this experience where um, people are um, not like you, but they have these questions, okay? They have these um, ideas, these concerns. They're like trying to figure out uh, eternity. Maybe um, they were just at a funeral. Um, something's going on. And you start to see that God is welling up in them um, spiritual concerns, I want to just I want to call you attention to something, okay? This is what the Bible calls drawing. And there's this process where God enters into people's life and he starts poking at them curiosities and questions about eternity and Jesus and spiritual things. And when you find somebody asking questions, let me just tell you, this, the majority of the time, is a move of God. And you need to take your time with them and be patient with them and engage them in this process. And some people, as they start asking questions, they they resolve the answers quickly and come to faith in Jesus. Some of them, it takes 20 or 30 or 40 plus years. Uh, So here's what I do. Whenever I see anybody who is at all spiritually curious, I stop and I take time to invest in that person. Because the majority of the time, I find that God is using that to draw them to himself quickly or slowly. I can't control that in any way, shape, or form. I wish I could, but I I can't. I want to ask this question. Why is heaven celebrating? So you might be a non-Christian. Let me just talk to you for a moment. And you think we're crazy. We are. I get it. I want to ask you to empathize with your Christian friend for a moment. So I want you to imagine that you believe what we believe just just for a moment, okay? So we is the Christian, see our family member, our friend, this person that we care about. And we believe God desperately loves them, has a deep concern for them, that they are valuable to him. And we believe 
Because the Bible says to the core of our being that unless they trust in Jesus, they are going to go to hell. We believe this. I mean, this is at the core of our convictions. And this isn't a judgmental statement on our end. We don't mean any judgment. We actually are just calling reality reality because that's what the Bible says. Now, if we truly believe this, what would you expect us to do? To be numb? No. Would you expect us to talk to you about it? Yeah. Would you expect us to pray for you? Yeah. Would you expect us to love you whether or not you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Is our love for you conditional on you doing what we want and performing according to our expectations? No. But should you expect us to pray for you, to talk to you about it? Absolutely. And by the way, if you want to call yourself my friend, it's my job as a friend to be invested in the things you're interested in. Will you invest yourself in the things I'm interested in? You want me to be engaged in your passions. Will you be engaged in my passions? Will you ask me about my spiritual life? Will you ask me about what I'm learning in the most important part of my life, which is my relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? Will you ask me how things are going at my church because you love me and because this is valuable to me? Because I do that for you. And so there's this interesting tension that happens between Christians and non-Christians, family or friends in these relationships. And I kind of want to just put on the table, like, I don't need you to trust in Jesus. I want you to. I'm going to pray for you to do it. But I, I do. Here's what I need. If you want to be my friend, if you want to be somebody who actually has a relationship with me, I need to be able to talk about Jesus, period. You can't tell me. You can talk about every other thing in your life except for that because that offends me. Really? Are we tolerant? Are we? So... Here's my thing. If you want to be friends, let me talk about Jesus. And I want to let you talk about the things that are important to you because that's what a real relationship does. And so, you know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want to put this before you and say, um, when your Christian family member or or friend comes and talks to you, don't be freaked out. Don't think they're being judgmental. They're actually acting out of deep love and concern for you. And their love for you is not contingent on whether or not you trust in Jesus or not. Does that make sense? You pick it up what I'm putting down here? We're good? Okay, good. Um, Let's go back. All of heaven stops and parties when somebody comes to faith in Jesus. I would like to be able to participate in throwing heaven a party. (laughs) Personally. I would love to do something that would make God stop and celebrate. I would love to be a part of that. Anybody else in here? I'm like, and it seems like um, God wants us, because the Bible says it, to participate in this search by bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know him and who are far from him, by building relationships, genuine relationships, with people who know Jesus and don't know Jesus, right? And by showing them eventually the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they reject it and when they reject it, our friendships continue because our love for them is not contingent on whether or not they love Jesus Christ or not. Our love for them is based on the fact that they're made in God's image and they're people and they're valuable to God. The Pharisees couldn't get this. The the scribes couldn't get this. The religious elite, they couldn't get this. The most religious people have the hardest time with this. So I want to close with two points. Number one, when you're reading this story, you need to get this. You are the sinner and the tax collector. When you read the story, you'll be tempted as a Christian to put yourself in the father's perspective, but you will not understand the story until you first identify with the sinner and the tax collector. You are the wandering sheep. You are the lost coin. You are the prodigal son. Then, 
then you cannot be like the Pharisees and the scribes. Then you cannot step back in judgmental. So what happens when the sheep wanders away? It's hurt, it's cold, it's lonely, it's nighttime. The shepherd picks him up, brings him home. Then another sheep wanders off. Is that sheep going to judge the sheep that's wandering off? No, because it understands he's just like that sheep. He understands that that same thing that drove that sheep over there is the same thing in him that drove him away also. And they are both in desperate need of a shepherd to come in and save them and rescue them from their plight. And so number one is you cannot get these parables until you first identify that you are the sinner. You are the one who needs to be rescued. Then you can start to understand this. But number two, very simply, is this. Pharisees grumble disciples go. Pharisees grumble, they make excuses, blah, 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 disciples go. Disciples make disciples. It's not an option. So we all hear this, like, this statement, when I die, I want God to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That should be like a deep heartbeat of the Christian. And I want to just tell you this with all the love I can muster. You cannot ignore the great commission of God to go and then stand before him and have him say, well done. You cannot do it. He has given us one job description before he left. If you ignore that and expect that because you're a good person that you will get a well done, it won't happen. You cannot ignore that. And so I say that as an encouragement to you. For some of you, that's like, ah, it's going to pierce you. For some of you, you're like, oh, man, like I was numb, and the Lord is just going to use that statement to awaken you a little bit. But let me tell you this. When you participate with God in searching out for people who are lost and helping them understand the truth, the good news of God's love and forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, it is one of the most beautiful experiences. We get to be part of that story, cooperating with God to help people come back home to their Heavenly Father. I just want to encourage you that we have all summer long. Summer is awesome. Winter's, winter stinks, right? You're, nobody talks to each other. We're alone. We're pale and pasty white and cold. And, <laughs> We get to the summer. Everybody's outside. You actually get to talk to your neighbors. You get to go to barbecues and holidays and family events and out and out and people are doing stuff. Redeem this. Actually, I just wanted to give you this message because, number one, moving into a new home, I need to just be reminded of this. But you know what? Whether or not I moved or not, I need to be reminded of this. We are on a mission. Go. Make disciples. Love people unconditionally despite what they're struggling with or where they're at because they're made in the image of God. Do it. That's our job. Can we do it? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, um, thank you. Um, We were lost. Um, We wandered like sheep. We were the lost coin. We're the prodigal son. We're the sinners, the tax collectors. God, thank you that you loved us despite our rebellion, despite our struggles and our sin. I mean, you are holiness. You are perfect. You are righteous. And you looked down on our humble, broken estate, and you pursued us, threw us over your shoulders, brought us back into the kingdom. Thank you. We take no credit for this. Lord, we were limp and broken and starving and needed you. And so, God, my prayer for the Village Church is that we would continue to participate with you as individuals before we do anything as a church that got our personal lives. Uh, We would be cooperating with you and searching And Lord, that our love for people who don't know you would grow and grow and grow. Whether or not they come to faith in you, we can't control that, but we can love them and share with them and encourage them. And I pray you would just help us grow in that area as individuals. 
And so, Lord, for those of you who don't know Jesus, or for those in this room who don't know Jesus, God, I pray that you would show them the beauty of the gospel, that salvation is not by works, but simply by trusting in Jesus. So, Lord, we love you. We worship you and thank you. All God's people said.